Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't live a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Hunting History Podcast. This is your host, Kat. And joining me this week, my trusty sidekick as always, Haley. Hi. This week, what I want to do is go over, not necessarily catch you up to where we are, because I'm getting information every single day. If there isn't a day that goes by that I don't find out something new. So I don't know that I can catch everybody up to exactly where we are, but I want to fix some things that we initially thought and go over some of the newer things that, that we've received since then. But before I do that, I wanted to say thank you to a couple people. Uh, Mary Bell with the Doe Network has been extremely helpful. You know who Mary Bell is, Haley? Yeah, the one that gave us names. She's the one. No, actually. Oh. She is a prospective match director for NamUs. So when people uh, f- submit a missing person that matches someone that's listed in the Doe Network at Jane or John Doe, she's the one who determines whether it is possibly that person. Like she hasn't, she explained a little bit of it in the last episode, but her job is to determine whether it's a viable match or not. And then the other person, I don't know if I even told you this, the person who gave us the case through Doe Network, it was given from one person to another who gave it to me. So I finally got to hear from the person who actually gave us the case. His name is Justin and he emailed me and has been extremely helpful in kind of, I guess he and Mary are working sort of a sounding board for me, but Justin is far more proactive as far as sending me questions and asking me if I got this, if I got that. And he's been really helpful to kind of narrowed down what I should be doing as opposed because I feel like I'm with a case like this there's so many individual players and then there's witnesses that I'm looking for and then there's friends that I'm looking for and people who were in the police statement and then talking to the detectives and stuff and Justin's been kind of really good about trying to get me to narrow down to certain things so he's been really helpful the other person who's been really helpful, and I'm not going to say his name on here because he hasn't said that I could, but he's a private investigator out of California, and he has been a private investigator since 1982, and before that he was, before that he worked with or he knew Rolf Parks from the Norco Bank robbery. That's how I got in touch with him was through Rolf, and he has been incredibly helpful. Um, he can look at things that I can't, and he's the one who actually got me the case number on the probate file for... John Kidwell and he I can't even describe how helpful he's been he's like kind of walking you through it would have probably what would have happened would do. yeah exactly yeah. he had helped me kind of determine what would have happened back in 1979 and what I should be doing now things that I hadn't really thought about so he's been really really helpful I want to also mention one of our listeners Catherine Reeder she is a spiritualist her ta- her sign on her emails is spiritualist medium and she's a card reader and she offered to do readings for both of us. And I don't know if people believe in that. And I don't, to be quite frank, I don't know how much I believe in it, but I agreed to it because I'm fascinated by it. And she's such a nice person. She sounds like just so genuine. And she did a reading for me and I won't go into it. And she actually did a reading for you. Yeah. Which 
it is really, it has nothing to do with anything here, but she helped me to sort of focus a little bit because she reminded me, and I don't know if this is a spiritual thing or not, but she reminded me that I'm where I'm supposed to be. Like as, as frustrated as I get with this and all the people that I talk to and my sleepless nights because my brain is just whirling, she kind of grounded me again and just reminded me that I'm on the path I'm supposed to be on and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be for whatever reason, whether it's the universe or I put myself here, it's where I'm supposed to be. So, I mean, that was, it kind of validated what you're doing. It validated it and it made me just kind of stop for a minute and breathe for a day because I really haven't taken a day off since we started doing this case way I think the first contact with Jocelyn, Debbie's niece, was way back in the beginning of May. And I and I haven't taken a minute or a day off of it. And after talking to Catherine, I took a day to like just kind of breathe and settle into it. And it, it was ridiculously helpful. And I don't know, maybe there was a reason for that. But I want to, we're going to have her, if anybody's interested, we're going to, interested, we're going to have Catherine's information and website on our episode page if anybody is interested in that type of thing. Um, she, if, even if you're not, she's very genuine and very sweet and just sort of a calming influence, I think. So we're going to have her on there. And I have some, I'm going to kind of, I don't want to rush through this because it's so important, but I do have some podcasts to thank. I had put feelers out for other podcasts that could help me get the story out, not for us, not for promotion purposes or not for publicity purposes, but I feel like, the more people that know about this story, the more likelihood we are to find someone who's still alive. It wasn't that long ago. It was 40 years ago that knows something. And so there's, we have different genres in podcasting. And I feel like if other genres, not just true crime, that we might reach more people that way. And I've had podcasts writing me back and either playing our promo or talking about it on their page. And in exchange for that, I wanted to do the same for them. The first one who responded to me was laughing in the dark podcast. And it's, it's, I love this podcast. It's not just that. It's not just that they're doing their promo first. I actually really like these podcasts. It's, it's laughing in the dark podcast. Their um, website is lit dark podcast. And it's a podcast out of Portland, Oregon by Sarah Jones, who's very sweet. And she hangs out in haunted places with comedians and they share laughter and terror. And they talk about our, their best ghost stories and learn the history of the haunted locations they're at. And she doesn't have a promo, so I don't have really anything to play, but she's getting one together and I want to play it later. But if you're interested in that podcast, it's really funny. It's called Laughing in the Dark Podcast and their website is lit, L-I-T, darkpodcast.com. Um, thank you, Sarah. And then the other one is Critter Podcast, which cannot get any further from what we do. Host Cassie and Karina take you into a deep dive about amazing animals each episode, sharing info and love of critters big and small. And we do have their promo, so we're going to play it right here. Hey, Karina, do you want to hear an interesting new fact about sloths? Impossible, Cassie. I know all there is to know about sloths. They spend their whole lives eating and sleeping, and that's living the dream in my book. I bet you don't know this fact. Fine, surprise me. Sloths are surprisingly fast and skilled swimmers. They can move three times faster in water than they ever can on land. Suddenly, I love them even more. Where can I possibly learn more exciting and interesting facts about sloths? Well, we did do an entire episode on sloths for CritterCast. Right! CritterCast, our comedic animal-themed podcast. It's the show where we talk about all kinds of animals and why we love them. 
We upload new episodes twice a month on every second and fourth Sunday. Just in time for your Monday morning commute. You can find CritterCast on iTunes, Spotify, and many other podcast streaming apps. Plus, check out our website, CritterCastPodcast.com, for links to all of our social media and for more fun facts and adorable photos of critters big and small. CritterCast Podcast. And it's really cute. Uh, Cassie was so sweet to write back to me, and they're going to their podcast has nothing to do with crime or anything like this, but they're still going to play our promo for us. So I wanted to say thank you to both of them. And then as we get into the story this week, what I want to do is kind of go over because uh, so far that this season has been just one phone call after another. So I wanted to give more information on each of the individual people in the story. And so that there's no confusion as we go further and deeper into this, I'm just going to be referring to everybody First name wise, and this way I want to kind of make it clear who each individual person is. The missing people, and this is Deborah Lynn Kidwell. Um, her maiden name is Cronin, so her name is Deborah Lynn Cronin Kidwell. She goes by Debbie. She was born May 27th, 1952. And then her sons are Joshua John Kidwell and Jackson Dylan Kidwell. They were born March 13th, 1976. So Deborah Kidwell, Debbie, we're going to call her Debbie from now on, would be 66 years old currently. And Joshua and Jackson would be 43. Their, their father, Joshua and Jackson's father, and Debbie's husband was John Needham Kidwell. And he was born January 29th, 1949. And he is no longer living. And we'll get into that and what happened with that. Um, they were married in Ernst Ernest or Ernst, Ernest, Pennsylvania, approximately 1974. I haven't found the exact date they were married because, again, it's it's almost too current to get information from Ancestry.com on that. But I did find a newspaper article from September of 1973, I think it was, of them getting their marriage license in Pennsylvania. The people that I'm talking to currently is Jocelyn who is the niece of Deborah, and she's the one that I've talked to the most. In fact, I talk to her every single day. And where we left off on the last episode, I had told Mary that we had found John's nephew, Tyler. Yeah. And I was really excited about that. We had found him through Ancestry.com. Jocelyn had set up her family's family tree, and... She gave me the login, so like I kind of go between hers and mine all the time. And I had found on, I was on hers and I had found the Kidwell family. And I didn't find John because he's listed as private, but because I had found out through newspaper articles and obituaries who his dad was, I was able to trace a family, find a, find two. I found two family trees actually that belonged to the Kidwell family and I messaged both of them. And I wish I had a recording of mine and Jocelyn's conversation that time because she called me and said, check the messages on Ancestry. We we heard back from one of them. And it's so weird because I think so much of this is about intuition. Like when you're looking for people, you kind of feel like you're with the right person or whatever. Like you, you have to do, you have to do your due diligence and figure out like whether for a fact, but a lot of it is just instinctual, instinctual, like you follow your gut reactions to certain things and I had thought another woman was going to write me back for some reason I thought for sure she was the right person and she's not the one that wrote me back it was um another woman who wrote me back 
and said that, well, first, her first line was, her first line was something like, I tried to search your tree, but it wasn't coming up. So I looked you up on Facebook and uh, found the Find Deberlin and Sons Facebook page. So she's like, now I know who you are and I know what you're looking for. My husband is John Needham Kidwell's nephew. And I was super excited. And like I said, I wish I had the recording of Jocelyn calling me and telling me to check it because my first reaction was to freak out that she was a stalker too. <laughs> this lady, like she couldn't find the information. So she went and searched on Facebook and found... Which is exactly what you do. Right. I So I effing loved her like right from the first like sentence was that basically that she stalked to figure out who Jocelyn was and like why she was writing to her on Ancestry. So I immediately fell in love with her. But she said that she explained to us that her husband was John's nephew. So And this is Tyler. This is Tyler. And I haven't spoken to Tyler yet. So that's how we ended um towards the end of the last episode was I was super excited that we had found John's family because I wanted both sides. We forty years later I think it's important that we have Debbie's side and I really want to talk to someone on John's side of the family. Yeah. And so she gave us the email address and I've been going back and forth on email with Tyler and he has offered to let me interview him and he was really excited to get to the bottom of it. But we had an appointment yesterday for me to call him and interview him and he was a no show. He didn't answer texts or phone calls or emails. So I don't know if he's changed his mind since then that I wanted to give him time. I really want to talk to John's brother. And I want to give Tyler time to maybe talk to his dad first and see if his dad will talk to us. Is Tyler's dad, John's brother, the only other person you could talk to? Or are there other people? Well, he has a sister and I haven't been able to find her yet. I know that I'll be able to find the brother. I, I have a couple leads on how to find him and get in touch with him. And Tyler's brother or Tyler's John's dad, brother? John's brother. Okay. Tyler's dad. And I would, I would really, 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 of course I would like to talk to Tyler. It was his uncle. And he is a couple years older than the twins. So he was born, I think, three years before the twins were. And so he'll have a lot of information about his uncle, like how he was after the disappearance. We won't know immediately following disappearance. He's a little boy, but he knew his uncle all the way up until his uncle's death. So he would be able to give us some information. I'd, I'd really like to speak to John's brother because it's really hard going into this 40 years later. And I, and I want to make this really clear. The detectives from 1979 and the current detectives, and I will quote, well, we're not allowed to record our conversations with the detectives. So I can't really quote, quote what they say, but I can say what was written down. And the quote from... The current detective, after reading the file and going over everything, his summation, I guess, was, I believe the husband had a great deal to do with this. So I want to make it very clear. The husband is definitely the prime suspect. What I don't know is why he was a prime suspect and why they didn't arrest him or why they couldn't arrest him or why they couldn't put, I mean, other than the, the detective has mentioned a couple times that their their bodies were never found. So it's hard to have, especially back in 1979, to There's have... There's no crime without evidence in a body. Right. And there, the detective has cited, like, during a couple of my conversations with him, 
other cases where they've tried someone and, and convicted someone without a body. So that's not really the problem. And we, to be honest, we haven't gotten a clear answer as to if the detectives back then thought that he was responsible and the detectives in the following years, because there were at least three, I have at least three different names of detectives who have received the case since 1979, why he couldn't be arrested or why they couldn't pin it on him. I, I don't have that answer yet. So I guess talking to John's family, I can only guess or assume that they may not want to talk to me because of the fact that, that John was the prime suspect. I mean, I don't know how I would feel if one of my family members, I mean, I do know how I would feel. I mean, I believe I know how I'd feel. I, I would want to help the police in any way that I could, even if it was 40 years later, but I don't know that everyone else feels that way. So I have not spoken to the nephew yet other than a few emails back and forth. And I have not spoken to John's brother yet, which I would really like to to talk to. So most of your contact is just Debbie's side. Yes. Most of my information has come from Debbie's side. And as far as John's side, it's only been emails back and forth with the nephew so far. So do they not know the information that you've gotten from the detective? They don't know any of that stuff? John's family knows a little, very little. I haven't given them a ton of information because I was waiting to have a conversation with them. And I sort of have been putting out feelers and asked uh, Tyler directly, like, if we find out that your uncle had everything to do with their disappearance, how is that going to make you feel? Like, are you okay? Are you okay with that? Like, are you okay with opening this box and whatever happens, like, you're going to be fine? Yeah, like, are you going to be all right? I'm going to tell the story. No matter what I do, I'm going to tell the story. I'm trying to help a family heal or at least get some kind of answers or at least be able to put it to rest with all the knowledge that they can have. And I told him that and I said, in one of my emails, I said, how are you, like, how are you going to, are you going to be okay with that? Like, if you help me out and tell the story and tell me what about John and his life, are you going to be okay with at the end we come to the same conclusions as the detectives? And he said, yeah, he, they just want the truth is what he said. But then, but then he backed off, but then, yeah, I haven't heard from him in 72 hours. So I don't really know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how I would feel in that same position, but I would like to hear there. I would like to hear John's family's side of the story. He did mention that he believed that they hired a private investigator at some point. But I haven't even gotten a straight answer as to whether they hired the private investigator to find Debbie and the boys or if they hired a private investigator to clear John's name, which would be two very different things. Or when he was hired, if it was like right after, years later. Right. That's the other thing that I haven't gotten an answer for yet. They did the. In the meantime, though, this is the good news. In the meantime, we had written a couple of emails back and forth to the detectives. Like I said, with the original detective, I had something like 32 emails going back and forth. And he had told me that he believed he would be able to give more information to the family as opposed to media. He called me media. Fine. I'm fine with that. But so Jocelyn kind of stepped in and has been talking to, weirdly enough, she's not even talking to the detective anymore. She's talking to his boss, the sergeant above him who has been extremely helpful. They went from being not helpful at all to basically reading the police file. They're never going to hand us the police file, unfortunately, because it's considered active and ongoing. 
And it went from the original case was a missing persons case. And that changed to the major crimes unit, which is robbery and homicide. So they believe that they believe that they're dead. They believe that they're deceased. The police believe All that. three of them. Yeah. Or they wouldn't have moved it to robbery and homicide. There's special crimes. They would have left it as a missing persons file, but it's not considered missing persons anymore. And during one of the conversations, luckily Jocelyn, she gets to talk to the detective more because like the original detective had said, they're more inclined to give her information than give me information. Although they've been really kind to me also. They, he reiterated to her that it was moved from missing persons to major crimes and that he, he too, like I read his quote, he too believes that John had everything to do with the disappearance. So do we get to talk about what conversation the detectives and Jocelyn had? Yeah. In fact, Jocelyn takes really excellent notes and this is the most important thing that we have found out since we started working with the detectives and they've been more forthcoming because Jocelyn, I don't think I told you this was willing to fly in still is willing to fly to California if they were to give us the actual case file, which they're never going to do, but there is 75 pages that are digitized and that includes all the original missing persons file, the initial investigation and the initial missing persons report. So the first thing that um, the first conversation that Jocelyn had with them the first thing that was brought up was the car. And in my conversation with the original detective and then the conversation, this conversation Jocelyn had, the sergeant was going over with her that the car was found at LAX airport. The car as in Debbie's car. Well, hold on. This is how they're uh, telling us the story. They're basically reading the report and telling us the story. And this is what the original detective did with me was that the car was found at LAX airport. And he expanded on that and said, the doors, the hood, and the trunk were all standing open, which is what alerted the um, LAX police to contact the police. So we've been working on on that. I mean, that that the car was found at the airport. Come to find out, probably two to three conversations in with this sergeant, that Detective Cadman and the sergeant were both confusing a different case. And the car was never found at the airport that the story was that John and this is the same story that Debbie's family knew and John's family knew that in, in fact, I'll tell you the first, the original missing persons report was that they were last seen at LAX because John drove Debbie and the two boys to LAX pulled up to the continental airlines door dropped them off and he waited in the car and watched them get in line for Continental Airlines. And then he drove away because he was double parked. He never got out of the car. So the story that Debbie's family knew and the story that John's family knew is completely accurate. So the confusion about the car was not confusion at all, except for the fact that they were thinking of a different case. They were thinking of a different case. So that whole thing is thrown out. It's everyone is actually on the same page about everyone's the car. actually on the same page about the car, which was really frustrating for us because we probably spent a good week, week and a half kind of tra- tracing down the car, figuring out like her leaving at the airport. And if John's initial uh, missing persons report was conflicting with the actual information the police had. Yeah. And it's not. Yeah. And then that's where I go back to wanting to talk to John's family again, because I feel like so much of the history and so much of the conversations we're geared towards the husband doing it, not necessarily what really, really, truly happened. 
And what really happened was the initial, he read the initial, the official report, and it was taken on May 5th, 1979. John last saw them at 2300 hours at LAX. He had gotten a phone call that day at work from Deborah. Deborah said, my mom is really sick in Pennsylvania. I need to fly to her. So John went to the air, the bank, pulled out $450, gave her $450 cash, which would have been more than enough to buy the plane tickets to Pennsylvania and back in 1979, and gave her a blank check. And then dropped them off at the airport, watched them walk in, drove away. The next day, this is all from the very original missing persons report. The next day, May 5th, he around noon, he called Debbie's parents. Now, the original story was at Debbie's mom, and you can hear it in the recording from the sister and the stories passed down that the grandmother answered the phone, that the mo- Anne Cronin answered the phone, which is Debbie's mom, Jocelyn's grandmother, answered the phone, and John said, let me speak to Debbie. From what the police report says, that's not what happened. When John called the Cronin house, he spoke to Debbie's father and said, can I speak to Debbie? And the father said, she's not here. And John said, she is. I dropped her off at the airport last night. She was coming to see Anne because she said Anne was deathly ill. And he said, no, he, she's not. And Debbie and the boys are not here. John hung up the phone and called the police and reported them missing right then and there. And that's story is. That's the official statements. But like just from John? Or just from John. The this dad is, is saying, yeah, he did call me. That conversation happened. Well, no, the dad is long gone. Debbie's father passed away years ago. No, like they, the police didn't get a statement from Debbie's they, dad? We don't have that. They don't have that. Oh. So the next so thing. So all we have is what all John All we have is what John said happens. And it's conflicting with what Jocelyn's family has always said was that the Debbie's mom answered the phone and John didn't say, oh, wait, why are you answering the phone? I thought you were on your deathbed. Like that was always like a contention with them. Like if John really believed that she was sick, why did he just start chatting with her and not be like, I thought you were on your deathbed. I thought that's why my wife had to go there. And from the official police report, he didn't even talk to Debbie's mom. The initial conversation was with Deborah's dad and Deborah's dad explained they weren't there and that Anne was not sick. So I guess I'm just kind of confused and feel like the detectives dropped the ball because why would they just take a statement from John and not be like, well, let's make sure he actually did call the dad and have this conversation. Well, like that seems weird to me that they wouldn't check his story out. There's two two things you can look at. First of all, the detective, the current detective has made it clear that they did things quite a bit differently back in 1979 than they would do currently. And secondly... I believe that originally when they took the missing persons report, they didn't take it seriously like she was gone, like deceased or anything. They took it more like a wife who ran away. Well, because, yeah, that's how John makes it seem. But I feel like they should have looked at it and been like, is he making it seem this way on purpose so we don't look for bodies? Or did it really happen? Right, except that... John is saying that he she was rushing back to her mom. Her mom was on her deathbed. And then when he files the, the case with the police, he says exactly what happened. He says that he called... Well, I don't know about dropping them off at the airport. It's not exactly what happened. But he did call the Cronin house and find out she wasn't there. 
So I don't know that in the first conversation, he led them to believe that she was a runaway wife. I think in the first conversation, I think they took it that way that she was a runaway wife. I don't think they suspected him right off the bat is what I'm saying. And as far as calling and confirming what had happened, the next thing that happened was, and this is another thing that sent us into another tailspin because uh, here I am like the initial conversation when I find out that it wasn't Ann Cronin that he originally spoke to after all the family folklore of how he didn't ask like, how are you answering the phone when you're on your deathbed thing? When I find out that it wasn't even Ann who answered the phone initially, it was the father who answered the phone initially my brain starts going okay like we're framing this guy right from the very beginning do you know what i'm saying like well why isn't he asking why you're answering the phone like you're so sick you can answer the phone like i i don't want to jump to conclusions that this man actually did anything so i'm like okay the police report is saying it wasn't even her that answered the phone so that's just more folklore that's passed down to the family the game of telephone that wasn't actually accurate information but then Anne. Immediately after the police, rep- the missing persons report is filed, Anne called the police directly and told the police, look, my, my son-in-law called and said that my daughter is missing, but nowhere during our conversation, which wasn't a conversation with her, it was with her husband, did he mention anything about the boys? Like, where are the boys at? So I guess that first initial phone call when he called the grandparents wasn't, it was about Debbie, but he wasn't mentioning what happened to the boys. And then she told the police, here's the deal. I don't think my son-in-law is telling the truth. He's spent time in prison. So she suspects him off the bat. Immediately. Immediately expects, suspects that John had something to do with them. And that the whole phone call was a ruse. Yeah. He's just trying to cover up something. Right. She's immediately suspicious right off the bat that John is calling and saying that they're missing and she tells the detective that he went to prison at some point. And the the current detective made it clear to Jocelyn that he hadn't confirmed any of that, that he didn't know for a fact that John had been to prison or what he had been to prison for. But I did. And I, that was a ton of work. I mean, I can't tell you how many phone calls I made because, again, 1979 is such a weird time period. It's not old to be considered historical, and it's not current enough to be digitized. But for some reason, this is so strange. She mentions that he is, that he was, had done time in prison at CRC. Do you know what CRC is? No, I don't know. And she had specifically mentioned the location of the, uh, that he was at CRC, which is one of the California state prisons. CRC happens to be within spitting distance of us right now. He was from Los Angeles, Ventura County. And they sent him to literally right down the street from where where we sit right this moment. Oh, weird! That's it's such another it's such another parallel to my life that this story always keeps bumping into my life. But what I did find weirdly enough is is I had gone through probably like eight people to try and find his prison file because I wanted to know if he had been in prison for anything violent. But CRC is California Rehabilitation Center, which leads you to believe that it's most likely something to do with drugs. And Deborah's mom, and we'll find out later as we go along, her, her mom, Anne, mentioned several times that she believes that John was um, using drugs on and off throughout the 1970s. And I found his police record. The The weird thing about it is, is that by like the eighth person I spoke to said that there was a group of files 
on site there, the state archives um, from random years that they were still looking to digitize or, or file away. They didn't know, I guess what they were going to do with him yet. And so there's not very many here. It's not likely that he's part of them, but let me see what I can do. And then a couple of days later, she calls me back and weirdly enough, his file was in that pile of files sitting there waiting to be digitized or filed, mm-hmm. which is so strange that it would like the randomness of it being his file being there and they can't share the majority of his file. Like they can't share who visited him. They can't share any psychological treatment that he got while he was there. Um, because there's a ton of stuff that they can't tell me, but they can tell me that it was a narcotics charge, that it wasn't a domestic violence or anything like that. It was, it had something to do with drugs and that in 1979, what would be considered a felony that would put him in prison would now be considered a misdemeanor. Oh, okay. So it wasn't anything. Did you say how long he served? Well, that's the problem. Reading the file, it was 1970. He was sentenced and convicted in 1970 on a narcotics charge. And I can't get any more information other than it was a narcotics charge. And then it looks like he got out and then went back. But I think he got out in 1974 and he was married in 1974. That's He went back to Pennsylvania after that. So he got out and got married to Debbie? Yeah, but I think he did four years. I'm pretty sure. So it's hard to say what the seriousness is of his conviction because, again, they can't tell me it's not public record until um, 2058. It'll be considered public record. I can't believe it's that long. It's 50 years after the person has passed away. So then the second thing, uh, we have to clarify the car, um, to clarify that the phone call. So with my thing, I keep going back and forth, like some things are not true. So I don't want to pin it on John. And then something happens like his prison record, like, okay, well maybe it, you want to go back to it being John again. And then something else will happen that I'll, it's, that's the, conf, that's the hard part about this. But I want to go back to um, when Jocelyn initially talked to the police police department with the detective and he started to give her the information he wanted to be clear that the case was class classified as still missing and that um they're not declared de- deceased as far as the police go but it looks like john divorced her in 1993 he didn't have her declared deceased but he did divorce her in 1993 because since then i've got the probate records and the probate records list him as being deceased so I'm not certain how you did you divorce someone who, I guess it's considered abandonment after so many years. I was going to say, don't you have to have like the other half agree on the divorce? Like, how does that happen? It's I think because she ran off. I think at some point you can get a divorce based on someone being gone, gone. Right. But I don't know how. And we mentioned in the very first episode that there was a life insurance policy. And the police confirmed that there was a life insurance policy taken out on Deborah in February of 1979. So two months before she went missing, there was a, a life insurance policy that was taken out. I can't find any record of John getting that money. He wouldn't have gotten it at least for seven years, the way that insurance works. He wouldn't have gotten it for at least seven years after she disappeared. And then on top of that, he didn't divorce her until 14 years after she disappeared. So if he divorced her, he wouldn't be entitled to the money either. But you can't find that he did got I it after seven years anyway i can't find that he got the money there's no case files or anything it would have had to have gone through the courts for sure because she didn't there's no death record yeah and to collect a life insurance policy you have to have a death record 
So I don't show that he collected on her insurance policy at all, which again, then flips me to the other side again. Like he didn't kill her for life insurance. He never took it. And if he divorced her in 1993, that makes it null and void that he would ever be entitled to her life insurance policy. Right? Yeah. I mean, or he banked on them finding a body and not pinning it on him and then he would have gotten it and that just didn't happen. So then he couldn't get the money. Like it could have just been like an oopsie, you know? Yeah, but he could have, after a certain amount of time, you can declare someone deceased. People do it all the time. Really? After a certain, yeah, absolutely. People do it all the time for insurance policies. They declare someone who goes missing deceased where they have to go through a courthouse to do it, but they get the, the judge will say, okay, presumed dead. So he didn't try hard enough. It doesn't look like he tried at all. Got it. And then the other thing is we bring up in um, in the last episode too is that Deborah's fingerprints are on file. And I want to clear this up because I think this is really important. And Mary Bell and I were talking about the only reason that a woman would have or a person would have their fingerprints done in 1979 is for nefarious reasons. Like she was arrested or went to jail. Come to find out she was a nurse. Her, so, so what does that mean? As a nurse, you have to get your fingers? Yeah, you do it for your licensing. You have to have oh. a fingerprints done and talking to Deborah's sisters neither one of them mentioned they mentioned that she was a waitress and an artist but nowhere do they mention that she was a nurse hmm. so she was a nurse one of the witnesses that is in the police file worked with her at Santa Monica Hospital so she, that's why her fingerprints were done was because she at one time was a nurse she didn't she had quit four years prior to her disappearance and went to work as a waitress weird Right? Yeah. And then the other big thing that I want to clarify is we talk a lot about a nervous condition and it being epilepsy. I think this is important important information is that they they spoke to her doctor. Her doctor was a Dr. Jacobs. Now this again is all from the police file. Her doctor is Dr. Jacobs in her prescription. She was on very heavy drugs for her epilepsy. Um, she was taking Dilantin and phenobarbital, phenobarbital, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but it's phenobarbital and dilantin, which are very strong drugs. And I actually looked up the what could happen with these drugs, and it can cause changes in mental status, behavioral problems, and even dementia. But the thing is, is when they spoke to her doctor, her doctor made it very, very clear that she was not faithful to either her doctor's appointments or taking her meds. Interesting. And when you, I, I don't know, I don't know how that affects you if you're going on and off those kind of drugs. I mean, you. I assume it affects you a lot. It would make you kind of a mess. And I guess in the police file too, she had a grandma, grandma seizure in January that left her, uh, depressed and, and upset for something like three weeks. The January before she went missing. The January before she went missing. Kind of messed with her a little bit for a while. They do know that um, the police had checked and said that the last time she filled her prescription was December 18th, 1978. So six months before she went missing. But I don't know how much, again, she did not take her medicine faithfully and she didn't. So I don't know how, I don't know how much they gave her. Like they doesn't, doesn't, the police file doesn't say they gave her a year's prescriptions worth or six months or three months or whatever. And I guess it wouldn't matter anyways, because if she wasn't faithfully taking it, she could have half a bottle left come May if she didn't take it the way she was supposed to. And there's no record saying that she took these pills on this trip. 
there it, they they were nowhere to be found when they did the search of the apartment. Her her medication was not there. So either she ran out because they didn't give her a lot, or she took, she it, with took her. it with her. Right. We don't know yet. The other thing that I wanted to clear up too is that as far as John seeing them in line at Continental Airlines on May 14th, which was 10 days after they went missing, the police confirmed with Continental Airlines that Debbie or the boys were not on any of the Continental Airlines flights that night to Pennsylvania. What they don't clarify though, that I kind of want to clarify is that there was even a flight that night. We don't, we still don't know. They do know that the check that John gave her or he says he gave her allegedly never was cashed. That the only cash she would have had was $450. And there was no way to trace that he ever spent the $450? Well, there's actually no way to even know. Um, The police looked at his bank statements and all it says, and again, this is 40 years later, is no major purchases, nothing that seems um like suspicious. But they don't confirm that he, whether or not he took out the 450 But this is what Jess, Jess and I were talking about, like, when did he pull out that $450? It wasn't 11 o'clock at night when he took him to the airport. There weren't ATM machines back in 1979. Hmm. But did he do it when she told him at lunch that she had... And and I'm confused about where I'm getting the the phone call that she called him at work and said that she had to go. But somewhere during one of the conversations, it's mentioned in one of the notes that... Or Jocelyn told me, I don't remember, because, again, we can't record our conversations with the sheriff's department. So everything has to be... Luckily, Jocelyn takes such good notes. I'm not as good as she is. But somewhere I'd read that she had called him at work. So he could have left work and pulled out that money before even going home from work. But there's no record of that? Or the police just don't say that there is? The police don't say that there is. So that's, again, the detective now says that this is so differently investigated than it would be in current day. Yeah. So those are all the things that we had mentioned in the first couple of episodes that were not accurate um, as far as what we're learning as we go along and as we, I mean, to get the police file, it's literally been five, six conversations so far just to get a 75 page report has been six conversations and they've made it clear to us that they have to work on current cases. So they're going to give us one more chance. So we get to write a list of questions and ask one more time and they're going to go through the file that the only other thing that we'll probably get from the police file, which I think that we've gotten a lot and we'll find out as we go through the episodes and I kind of get everything in a more sense, sensible order that she had a diary and that it's a great contention in the police report that her about her diary and John gave the police her diary and her address book. And in her diary, she writes a lot about John and the boys all in positive. Everything's positive that she writes about John and the boys. And she writes a lot. Like she, it's not little, little tiny paragraphs or sentences she writes every time she writes in her journal she writes a lot except for the last three days before she went missing and those are all just one sentence entries which is bothered the crap out of the detectives like they mentioned a lot in the police report but they don't mention what's written in the diaries so do you know if her diary is kept as evidence anywhere well that's what we believe it's in or the detective believes that it's in the archives which is in a different location than where the detective works so last Wednesday, we were supposed to get a copy of it. They'll never give the diary away. It's going to stay in evidence. Right. But they're saying now that they can have someone photocopy it and give it to Jocelyn's family. Because that's fair. Jocelyn's that's family. That's her property. That, yeah. yeah, have every right to that information. 
So we're still waiting for that. That'll I mean, be interesting. It's supposed to be Wednesday. Yeah, so much so that the, the last three entries bothered the detectives so much so that they mentioned that they're going to have the handwriting analyzed. But to then there's no, to see it. if it was her because it bothered them so, so very much. And that's what kind of trips me out too is like almost in the police report, it's almost like they're blaming John. Like John wrote the last three entries. And to me, I mean, I hate to be devil's advocate, but if she was taking these serious drugs and she wasn't taking them regularly and it did affect her mental state, wouldn't it affect how you write too? I mean, I guess, yeah. I don't know. So I, that's another thing. And then um, the last thing I want to mention is is that it is confirmed that John committed suicide in 2008. Okay. He um, shot himself in his house. And there's so much more to, to that story. He did leave a suicide note. And Are we going to be able to talk about that in the next episode? We will be talking about the suicide note in the next episode. And... We will be talking about the other extenuating circumstances when he, when he killed himself and why I keep changing my mind so much. Because one minute I'm convinced that this poor man lost his wife and kids and, and lived his life wondering where they were. And then in the next minute, I'm like, Oh, he did it. Like he did it and we'll never find their bodies and we'll never find them and we'll never know what happened. Yeah. We still don't know what happened to Debbie, Joshua or Jackson. We have small reasons to believe that maybe Joshua and Jackson or even Deborah may still be alive. If that's the case, then they may still be out there. To believe that, you have to believe against what all the detectives believe, and that is that John had nothing to do with their disappearance. If they survived past the night of May 4th, 1979, the boys would currently be 43 years old and Debbie would be 67. Please help us by sharing this podcast and like and share the Facebook page, Find Deborah Lynn Kidwell and Sons. We do believe that someone, somewhere knows something. Please help us find that someone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. Be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost.